This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. This is book 8 of 52 for my 2020 reading list. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be a brief introduction to the book, the author who suggested it in my initial reaction. Second segment will be a few of my favorite things. And the final segment, segment three, will be my the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. So on to segment one, the author is Graham Greene. He was born in 1904 in England and passed away in 1991. He studied history at Oxford, wrote over 25 novels. They are considered to be Catholic novels, which just means he wrote about modern issues, but kind of through a Catholic lens. For what it's worth, he hated that term, Catholic author, and just preferred to be uh, called an author who happened to be Catholic. He was also a spy. He uh, was recruited by MI6, which is Britain's foreign intelligence service, kind of like the uh, the CIA in the United States. And he also had a history of depression and attempted suicide on, on more than one occasion. The Power and the Glory, it was written in 1940, uh, the book I'll be discussing today. It was initially published in the United States under the name The Labyrinth Ways. So in Britain, it was called The Power and the Glory, but in the United States, The Labyrinth Ways. Uh, now it's just referred to as The Power and the Glory. And if that name sounds familiar, it's it comes from the Lord's Prayer. So at the very end, it says, Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So it comes from that little little snippet. The Vatican was not all that happy with this book. Um, They said it damaged the reputation of the priesthood. But uh, later on, uh, Graham Greene, the author, had a a private audience with Pope Paul VI, who told them not to worry about that and ignore that criticism. This is the first book I've ever read by Graham Greene. And in fact, I'd never heard of him until this book was suggested to me. So the storyline is, uh, well, this is a a work of of fiction. It's a novel. And I mention that because Graham Greene wrote two books about his time in Mexico in the 1930s. Uh, It it was inspired by his time in Mexico. And he was there to study and and learn about uh, persecution that was happening happening to the Catholic Church in a particular area of Mexico. So although it's never mentioned in the book, the area that Graham Greene was in was was to the Tabasco area. And he was trying to, to learn about priests and, and uh, the persecution that the government was was doing against Catholicism uh, and, and really taking it out on the priests by killing them or making it so unpleasant that they would, would flee the area or even making them marry. And uh, you can't be married as a priest, so that would basically nullify their their priesthood. And so this 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 story, this novel, takes place in that atmosphere. Of we we have one remaining priest in this area, so we the the book follows this priest around, and so he's an outlaw. He he can't be a priest anymore. So he's 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 kind of on the fringes. He's he's running away from the from the law, but he's also a very flawed man. So he's a flawed outlaw. And he's referred to as the whiskey priest because he likes 
he likes drink. Uh, ironically, that he he drinks brandy more than uh, than whiskey. But um, I guess brandy priest didn't have the the same ring to it. Uh, the, this priest also has a child, so that, that's a no no. Uh, but he has a, a daughter that uh, we meet in the book as well. So we learn about this priest from a variety of other characters in the book and how he relates to them and they relate to him. Uh, For instance, he comes across a Lutheran. He comes across a native of Mexico, uh, a Brit, uh, another priest, a dentist, a whole slew of criminals, and his his own daughter. So it's just a a neat neat way to, to see, to learn about this priest. Uh, in, in these different encounters through the book. As for uh, the introduction to the book, I the version I had was uh, a special 50th anniversary, and the, the introduction was by John Updike, and it was excellent. So I, if you plan to read this book, uh, try to try to find that one. And um, there, there's not like uh, spoilers in the introduction, and I'm really going to try to not give any spoilers in this episode either. But uh, you can read that introduction before you read the book, and it, and it and actually was helpful. As for who suggested the book, that is Rob Burns. He is a friend from high school. I used to call him Trooper. I used to call him Troop Doggy Dog. And he, in high school, I mean, he was, he was just brilliant, but he was also very humble. And so he, you, you could just have really great conversations with him because he wasn't trying to prove anything or, or, um, or sound smart, but it's just like he would, he would try to draw information out of you and, and get you to think. And it's been cool to, to watch him just, uh, we're, we're still connected through Facebook. I, I haven't seen him since, since high school, I don't, I don't believe, but, um, he got, he went and got a PhD from the university of, of Edinburgh. And, um, and so last year I just, I, I, why well, I respect him very much. And so last year I, I, uh, I, shot him a message on Facebook and, and just asked him for a, a couple of book suggestions. And, and this is the one of them that he, that he gave me. I've got one other book on my list this year that, that he also suggested. And I'll, I'll cover that on the, on the podcast uh, coming up. I read this book between April 1st and 5th of this year, 2020. So I just finished it uh, four days ago. I, I'm recording this April, April 9th. It's a 295 page book. So over five days, it's 59 pages per day. Took me seven hours, four minutes, and 41 seconds. That's a minute 26 per page. I track that just to, I'm, I'm curious about it, but then also just so you have an idea of how long it might take you to read the book. Uh, I read rather slowly, and then I take a lot of notes. So that's a, that's a um, good estimate on, on how, how, much it, how long it might take you to read it. As for my initial reaction, I thought it was a fantastic book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't get it at first. Uh, I actually had to restart the book. I, I was a few pages in, and just with the coronavirus and everything going on, um, I, I just, my mind wasn't there. So I, had to, I I was like on to page 40 or so, and I just had to start the book over. And I'm glad I did that because I caught a lot more uh, starting over like that. Uh, but then even at the end, I, I just didn't get it, what happened. And so I've been thinking about it a lot since then. And I love that when that happens in books, when, when it, it, it's almost like a puzzle piece and, and you, you got to put it together in your head and, and you remember different parts of it. And, oh yeah, that, that, that makes this part make sense. And then even preparing for this, this, uh, this episode, kind of revisiting it and, and even seeing more things connected. It, it, it's a cool book in, in that sense. Um, one thing to keep in mind, if you do read it, uh, there, a lot of the characters are never named. So you don't know them by 
a name. You, you might know them uh, by the whiskey priest or the lieutenant, but you also know them by their physical characteristics. And so it's important to keep that in mind as you're reading, like underline that or, or, or just make a note of that. Because like, it, for, for example, in chapter one, we meet the priest. We don't really know he's a priest by that point, but we know that he is plump with protuberant eyes. And that phrase just struck, st- stuck out to me, plump with protuberant eyes, okay? We see that exact phrase again in chapter two. So we know that we're talking about the same person or we're reading about the same person. So it, uh, it, that was cool just to, I mean, that, those few words and that's how you identify the person. And, but that would happen throughout the book. So just um, keep that in mind if you do read it. Another initial reaction, this book had the feel of, the best way I can describe it is, is the musical term staccato, where it's like boom, 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 boom. And just a, a slight little separation between between the notes, but but rapid notes. It's one of those books where the action is, it, it's rapid. Uh, the sentences can be short, like he'll have a, a forward phrase, but it just means so many different things. And some of those phrases reference uh, other books, some of it references the Bible. And so there, there's just so much going on in each statement, in each book sentence in each paragraph. Um, and it's also a, a rare book in the sense that I, c- I could just pick it up at any point and start reading. Uh, I contrast that with other books where I almost need to get to the end of the chapter or else I'm next time I pick it up, I'm not going to really remember where I was. But this is, even though it was divided into chapters and, and sections, it's one where you could just kind of pick it up and even just read a paragraph and it's, it was so vivid and the character so real that it, it didn't take a long time to, to remember where you were or the scenes or what was happening or the people. It was just, it was easy to, to pick it up. And, and that stuck out to me because that's not the case in most of the books that I read. So very concise, very pithy, uh, but extraordinary in that regard of just the, the level of depth in, in these sentences. As for who should read the book, as I mentioned before, it does have that puzzle feel. So it's almost like a, a mystery book in that sense of, of all these different puzzle pieces coming together, like a Agatha Christie. It's not a mystery book, but but it has that feel in that sense of it being being a puzzle. Um, it also, if you liked Blood Meridian uh, or or Twilight by William Gay, uh, Blood Meridian by, by Cormac McCarthy, uh, it had some of a sort of similar feel to those. Uh, I kept remembering those books as I was reading this one. So if you liked either of those books, you, you, you'll probably like this one. And then um, it, I, I do want to make a note that it, it, I said before it's a Catholic novel, but I, it's not like you have to be Catholic or Christian or anything. Like I, this book is, it's, it's amazing. It would help if you knew, if you had read the Bible before reading this book, but it's not necessary. But it's um, it, it definitely would give a lot more context context because it's just constantly referenced and in 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 just slight ways too, which but just adds a lot of of, of depth to the reading of this book. Now into segment two, I want to highlight three different ideas that stuck out to me in this book. The first is this idea of the whiskey priest. I'm going to read a section from page 77 that describes the priest. He was a bad priest. He knew it. They had a word for his kind, a whiskey priest. But every failure dropped out of sight and out of mind. 
Somewhere they accumulated in secret, the rubble of his failures. One day they would choke up, he supposed, altogether the source of grace. Until then, he carried on with spells of fear, weariness, with a shamefaced lightness of heart. End quote. That actually made me think of uh, the, the novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And if you've ever read that, uh, Dorian Gray lives this life of, of debauchery, but nothing happens to his physical appearance. Like he'll be up all night, he'll you know, just going crazy, like just doing horrible stuff, but nothing ever, like he still looks the same. He, lo- he still looks really good. But there's a painting of him. There's a portrait of him that's locked away somewhere in his house. And anytime he does something, the whatever would have normally happened to his physical appearance happens to that portrait. And there's a scene in that that book where where he just you know takes a sword or a weapon and, and just tries to destroy that pain because he hates what he's becoming. And you you have that same idea here uh, where it's saying the priest uh, every failure dropped out of sight and out of mind. Somewhere they accumulated in secret the rubble of his failures. One day they would choke up. He supposed altogether the source of grace. So this whiskey priest, he's 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 throughout the book. Um, he's going around helping people. And in fact, he has the ability to escape to a different part of Mexico where the where they're not persecuting priests. But every time he's on the way to do that, there's someone who needs help. There's someone who needs to confess their sins or someone who needs something from him. And he stops the pursuit of freedom to help this person. So on the one hand, he has trouble with alcohol. Like he will just, he, he's always trying to find whiskey so he can, he can drink whiskey. He he considers himself just a a, a horrible man, but you, you kind of contrast that with the good he does throughout the book and just a neat dichotomy, I guess, going on the entire time. And it brings me to my second thing that really stood out. And I'm going to call this opposite day. I don't know if you had this growing up, but uh, I grew up in Minnesota and at school, the public school, we would have a thing called opposite day. We were, we were crazy up there in, in Minnesota and uh, opposite day, you would just dress like your pants would be backwards. Your shirt would be backwards. You just did everything in an opposite way. And this book has that sort of feel in the way it's, the way that Graham Greene writes certain scenes, it's, it's like the opposite of how you would expect this to to normally happen. But by doing that, you get a glimpse into something in a way of thinking about it that you wouldn't otherwise get. It's it's almost like when you read fantasy or science fiction, like you're reading about this this world that the author made up, but you can relate it to your own situation even though you're talking about goblins and, and different things like you, you can relate it to your situation so the the first as part of opposite day is is confession the whiskey priest he is the since he's the only priest left in this area he can take he he takes everyone else's confession they confess their sins to him but he doesn't have anyone to confess to because he's the only priest so there's no other priest that he can go to to confess his sins. But he does confess his sins in the book. And he confesses them once he's arrested and he's in a prison cell with a bunch of other prisoners. There's a bucket of crap next to him. There's a, a couple making whoopee in the corner. And he's he's in this just this this pit. 
and he starts confessing. He, he, he tells them he's a priest. He tells them what he has done, that he, he drinks, that he has fathered a child. And it's, it's, it's just this amazing scene because you would never think that this priest, he, he wants to confess like, uh, some to some degree he wants to confess throughout the whole book but he can never there's never someone he can he can confess to but he ends up confessing to this group of criminals and tied to this confession confession the, the um the the authorities don't know they actually have the priest in prison and there's a bounty on his head so if if he just he just confessed that he was a priest to this group of prisoners they know that the authorities are looking for him and they could turn him in and, and potentially get, get an award. But none of these prisoners turn him in, but it turns out to be someone who, who claims that he is a Christian is the one who turns out to be the Judas in the story, the one that, that turns him in for, for money. So it's just this interesting, again, this opposite day, the idea where the criminals are not the one that, that turn him in and act like Judas, but the 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 man who says that he's a Christian ends up being the one that that is is the Judas in the story. Another opposite day type of thing. He, the the whiskey priest gets out of trouble twice in the book because of his vices. So there's there's one scene where the lieutenant, the the representative of the law, who's who's out to get him. Uh, has the priest right in front of him, but this is the 1930s. There's not. Uh, they have like one photograph of the priest, and it's a it's a grainy photograph. They they came and he can't really see him. So no one really. The the lieutenant doesn't know who he's looking for. He's just trying to to, to find from other people claiming, hey, this is the priest right here. This is the guy you want. Um, so the the lieutenant gets in front of the priest a few times, and the first time the priest gets away because his daughter identifies him as her father. And so the lieutenant's thinking, well, surely uh, this can't be the priest because he, he has a daughter. Uh, the second time, the priest has whiskey and wine, and the priest has purchased the wine in order to, to serve communion. But uh, he gets stuck in a room with the lieutenant. The lieutenant doesn't know it's him. And the, the way the priest gets out of this is basically by just getting the, the lieutenant drunk off of the communion wine. And... Uh, so, you, again, you have this, this idea that uh, of the opposites, of the vices are the things that end up saving this priest from getting arrested at, at that point. Um, and, and then he, the priest is persecuted by the law. He's, he's sought after. He's, he, they, they want to kill him for something that he's really not. Like, he has huge disdain for who he is. He, he thinks he's the worst priest. He is called a whiskey priest by, by everyone else. Um, and so it's like he's almost doing more harm to the faith than the lieutenant. But the lieutenant is trying to kill him just for what he represents as being the priest. So the author, Graham Greene, just does a great job with that, of allowing you to see things from a different perspective. There's a number of examples throughout the book in that. And, and it just helps you see something fresh and, and maybe a way that you haven't seen it before of, of thinking about it in just almost a grotesque, crazy, weird way. But looking at it that way helps you to see things you wouldn't normally see. The final thing I want to cover in this uh, segment that stood out to me is, is his discussion about the image of God. And so I'm just going to read a few, few quotes 
that stuck out to me. This one is on, on page 130 of the, of the version I had. But at the center of his own faith, there would always stood the convincing mystery that we are made in God's image. And taking myself out of the quote here for a second, we're, we're talking about the priest here, uh, at the center of his own faith. The convincing mystery that we are made in God's image. God was the parent. God was, he was also the policeman, the criminal, the priest, the maniac, and the judge. Something resembling God dangled from the giblet, gibbet or went into odd attitudes before the bullets in a prison yard or contorted itself like a camel in the attitude of sex. End quote. Another one. It was odd, this fury to, to deface, because of course you could never deface enough. If God had been like a, like a toad, you could have rid the globe of toads. But when God was like yourself, it was no good being content with stone figures. You had to kill yourself among the graves. End quote. That is in the context of, of if, if you are trying to get rid of Catholicism, if you're trying to get rid of, of Christianity or God or priests in a particular area, and if God if, if man is made in God's image, then you have to kill man to get rid of God. And so this idea comes up a number of times in the book. Uh, 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 one other time it's mentioned, uh, page 171, here's, here's another uh, quote. When you visualized a man or woman carefully, you could always begin to feel pity. That was a quality of God's image carried with it. When you saw the lines at the corner corners of the eyes, the shape of the mouth, how the hair grew, it was impossible to hate. Hate was just a failure of imagination, end quote. Just really thought that was an interesting way of, of looking at the image of God uh, in, in the impossibility of defacing, of, of completely getting rid of the face of God, if indeed man is made in God's image. Now on to segment three and the one key takeaway from this book, and that is the fallacy of the deathbed repentance. <laughs> Let me dig into that one a little bit. So there's, there's this idea that uh, with the deathbed repentance, it's basically you, you can get salvation at the very, very, very end of your life if you repent at that point. So as opposed to repenting right now, say, or earlier in your life, you just wait till the very last moment and then... Uh, Salvation can be received then. You you can be saved at that moment if you if you confess your sin if if you uh, are repentant at that point. And so why why be good? Why be repentant uh, early on when you can just wait till the end? So this is this the idea of the deathbed repentance. And Graham Greene talks about the fallacy of the deathbed repentance in this book. And so I'm going to read a few few quotes. The first is that was the fallacy of the deathbed repentance. Penitence was the fruit of long training and discipline. Fear wasn't enough, end quote. And then this one comes towards the end of the book. There was a legend believed by many criminals that dead eyes held the picture of what they had last seen. A Christian could believe that the soul did the same, held absolution and peace at the final moment after a lifetime of the most hideous crime— or sometimes pious men died suddenly in brothels, unabsolved, and what had seemed a good life went out with a permanent stamp on it of impurity. He had heard men talk of the unfairness of a deathbed repentance, as if it was an easy thing to break the habit of a life, whether to do good or evil. End quote. I just thought that was so fascinating. I'd, I'd never heard 
it put in those terms of the fallacy of the deathbed repentance. Because if if you are going a particular way in your life, what makes you think you're all of a sudden going to be able to change that at the end of the life? So why this stood out is, is for two reasons. I would not heard it mentioned that way. And the reason that you don't wait until the last moment to repent is that you won't be able to do it. It's a habit. So you're either moving one way or another, as, as, as I, I covered in, in uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where each day, each, each decision, we're moving one way or another. And so th- here's that idea again. And then secondly, you've heard me mention in many episodes of this podcast, one of the key lessons I've seen in so many different of these books is just the power of habits the power of a daily practice. It works like compound interest. You can, you can do something every day for many years and not see much of any change, but then all of a sudden it's like that curve shoots sharply up or down, but it can go either way. And so uh, this, this, that first quote there, penitence was the fruit of long training and discipline. Fear wasn't enough. Fear wasn't all automatically going to make somebody do something at the end of their life. And that that quote that I read comes like in the middle of the book. But then you see you see this play out in in different lives in the book of of um, some uh, some one of the criminals who actually wants to confess but ends up not being able to do it at the end just because that that habit isn't there. So I, I liked that. I liked how it tied in with with some of the other books of, of Titans and the in the importance of of daily practice and and habits in in a habitual way of of living your your life. And it's either going one way or or another. And to to change that or to think that you can change that at some point is a fallacy. It's kind of that idea too of you're not going to be a hero if you're not a hero in your daily decisions when no one's walking or when, 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 no one, when no one is watching. Like you're not all of a sudden just going to be a certain type of person when the situation demands it. If, if the practice, if the training, if the, if the habit is not in place on a daily basis. So to recap, I, I finished this book in uh, four days ago and I, I really haven't not, have not stopped thinking about it since then. I enjoyed it immensely it's one of those books that's just rapidly moving. Uh, the storyline moves quickly, but you can also uh, you, you can also just pick up at any point, just go back to the book and, and not um, not feel like you, you need to refresh on everything because it's just so vivid and so so real. I loved how he treated things in in that opposite way that allowed you you to confront ideas in a way that uh, that maybe you never have before. Um, I loved that that the the idea of the fallacy of the deathbed repentance, the the image of God, the um, the whiskey priest, and just the 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 dichotomies of his life, but but how how that played out through throughout his different encounters. Uh, if you do end up reading this, um, I suggest a few books before reading this. One would just be to read a book I covered last year called The Art of X-ray Reading by Roy Peter Clark. That's a book that really helps you to read fiction, to be a better reader. Um, how to, how to kind of pinpoint things, how to look for things, and so that that's a very helpful book just in general on, on how to write how to read novels. Um, 
And then uh, having some sort of a knowledge of the Bible would be would be helpful. It's not necessary for this book. You, you you'll still enjoy it, but it for this book in particular, it would be be very helpful. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. That's Eric with a K. So E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. Um, I'd love to hear if you've read this book or if you've read other Graham Greene books. Uh, like I said, this is the first one I had ever read. So be curious to learn more about, about the man from, from, from you if, uh, if you have read him, uh, other of his books. Uh, on a personal note, my grandfather passed away on, on Sunday, April 5th. Uh, I actually, it was, I found out in the morning, I just finished this book and, and my mother called soon after that. Uh, he was a good man. I uh, will miss him, miss him a lot. I learned a lot from him. He died peacefully next to his wife of 70 years and he was 97 years old. So he lived a, a full life. Uh, I'm currently reading Peace Like a River by Leif Enger. I'm, um, uh, probably almost halfway through that one and I'll cover that on a upcoming episode probably um I'm enjoying that one you can follow books of titans on instagram or twitter it's at books of titans and I also have a lot of resources on the website to help you find books and to create your own reading list uh, maybe you've been giving that more thought during this uh, coronavirus quarantine and just you you want to read more uh there's a lot of resource, resources on the help on the website to help you help you do that. I will likely be covering the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis in an upcoming episode that possibly next week or or the week after. Uh, but until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.